Voyagen, season three. And I love Boy. Enjoyable. It's remarkable. Lindsay. Elizabeth's Wheel, third season of Voyager. The purpose of all this is to gain knowledge of the universe and the people in it. You two are turning into a Star Trek script. Yes, it is a little bit clucky, but hopefully it will pay off in the long run. Welcome to Voyager, a theological journey. And we're about to take a trip through time today. Yes, that's right. In today's episode, number 21 of season three, entitled Before and After, Kess finds herself in temporal flux with her consciousness moving back in time through various episodes in her life up until her birth. I really enjoy uh, time travel stories. Uh, I think uh, the the idea that we're not um, fixed into this kind of linear, forward-moving, temporal um, uh, way of doing things really fascinates me. And and an interesting time travel story with a bit of a twist that actually isn't so much about traveling, you know, in a in a in a personal sense from one space to another, but but in this case, Kes is traveling. Um, back through her own life um, and gaining memories from the back end of her life to the front end rather than the way that we do. So I think there's some really interesting um, things to, uh, for us to explore in this episode. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I enjoy uh, time travel episodes too. And I, one of the interesting things is actually um, seeing the different ways in which time travel is portrayed and uh, interestingly, I think, you know, you can look at uh, something like Star Trek and uh, find that they portray it in different ways. And in particular, you know, whether you can go back and change time or whether in your going back, you do what you are always fated to do. Um, and uh, this particular one uh, seems to uh, at least be suggesting, and perhaps we'll find out in season four, but it seems to be suggesting that they have the potential to change time uh, through the warnings against the uh, Krenon that um, uh, Kess is able to bring them as she travels back in time. Yes. And while I found it interesting, I thought it was a bit... Uh, it's strained on one's credulity at points, I thought. <laughs> But I say that about a lot of episodes, so I'm sure you're uh, not going to take much notice of me. <laughs> I, think, I think time travel always uh, pushes the boundaries of credulity um, because because really it's beyond us to be able to even think about what it would be like to not be locked into a linear time sequence where one moment follows the next, um, that that traveling backwards in time is fraught with grandfather paradoxes and changing our, our, our own future and our own destiny and traveling forwards in time as is, is, is filled with all these different possible things that could go wrong about um, bringing things back and changing a possible future. If you could travel fluidly through time, then um, you know, one person's history is another person's destiny. Um, and so, um, you know, th there are just, there are so many things that can can go wrong that we just don't really understand it. Well, in a way, it's like the butterfly effect, isn't it? You don't know about the beating wings of the butterfly in the Amazon, what effect that's going to have. 
you know, across the world in, in the way it can set off a chain reaction of events. And I think time travel, particularly how it's been depicted in this episode, is quite similar to that. Yeah, I think um, similar to Elizabeth, I found that uh, my credulity was being stretched a little with this one, but it wasn't actually the time travel, which I, I, I quite enjoyed and, and found uh, quite an interesting approach. Um, it it actually, the, the breaking point for me, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was as she is travelling backwards and she becomes a, a baby and then an embryo. And and the reason that that, um, you know, I found myself thinking to myself, if you were travelling backwards in time like that, would the baby or the embryo's brain matrix actually have the capacity to hold your personality and memories as you know a grown person? I mean, I think I think you can kind of fudge it if if it's um, you know you're traveling back from one adult to another. But when you when you get to those earlier stages, you know, I kind of think to myself. Yeah, unless you imagine that the mind is is some immaterial thing floating separate from the brain, uh, which I don't, uh, then, you know, how is that actually going to work? I mean, there's a lot to think about there in terms of, you know, who we are and where we come from. We, we often think about our consciousness post-life and we, we, we you know, there's been lots of thinking and poetry done about what, what uh, and philosophy done about what might happen to us you know, when we when we shuffle off the mortal coil and move into the next next, next existence, um, do we have a body like we have a body now? Do we have something different? Are we just consciousness? If we think about ourselves as eternal beings um, and and life as 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 being um, a, an eternal thing, we often, as Christians, talk about eternal life. We can't just extend that eternity forward. We also, it's it's if if it's an infinite thing, then it must also extend infinitely backwards as well. And so perhaps there is a consciousness that exists that we we exist in some soulful place before we actually arrive uh, in our in our earthly bodies. Well, there's a children's novel that was made into a movie that tackled that very subject. Oh, it tackled other things as well, but it was called The Bluebird. I don't know if you know it, but there's at one point there's a whole scene where um, this boy and girl who are searching for this blue bird of happiness, and that's where I think the saying actually comes from, and um, they're looking for it and they end up in heaven. And heaven isn't just full of people who have died. It's also full of people waiting to be born. Mm. And they're all hanging around this place and they're all doing whiz-bang, you know, futuristic things and they're saying things to this girl and boy like I'm going to invent a cure for this and I'm going to invent a machine that does this. But they all know that once they descend to earth and they're born, they lose all of that. It comes out later, but they have no conscious memory of, hem of heaven or it's what their evolve. destiny is to go inventing or developing whatever it is they were doing. And yeah. as a child, I was just fascinated by that that, you know, there was this place that these souls came from and and a lot of them came um, with this purpose that they were going to do something to benefit the planet. Yeah, look, I mean, um, I think uh, 
there's been a, a recent sort of version of that in the um, Pixar movie. What was it called? Soul or something like that. Um, one of their recent ones uh, that showed a similar sort of uh, idea of, of uh, you know, souls waiting to be uh, put into a, a body. I, I, I think I'm going to have to play the, you know, Mr. Scientific at this point and say no, no i don't really i don't i don't i don't go for any of this i mean i think my own sense at least mathematically is that uh you know we can talk about uh directional uh infinity so you know if you think about it in terms of uh, geometry there is a difference between a, a line which does extend infinitely uh in both directions and a ray which has a uh, definite starting point but then travels infinitely in another direction and i think um physicists talk about the arrow of time and the fact that actually there is something about time that means that that it's not entirely symmetrical in the way we think about it going forward or back and and i guess i, I guess for me when i think about the christian hope of um some kind of afterlife uh, I, I have to imagine that there's actually some kind of substrate into which mentality can be uh, impressed. Uh, you know, so I, when I think about our brains and our minds, my view is that the the mind is a way of talking about a particular pattern of data, uh, which is held by our brains and and their firing, and if God or the universe or whatever is able to enable some other substrate that's able to take the same patterns and continue them. Then I'm fair enough about that. Uh, I'm 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 not quite so uh, excited about the possibility that uh, we were hanging around beforehand, uh, <laughs> waiting waiting to be born. Although I don't, you might remember um, Elizabeth. Or, or will, but uh, I have this vague feeling that maybe Origen, the early uh, theologian, had some idea like this about the transmigration of souls. Uh, possibly. He certainly had some odd ideas, so <laughs> I can't be specific about it, but um, I agree that because it, it seems to me you can start something, you can have a starting point and then go on to infinity or eternity. It doesn't have to be going in both directions. I agree with that. And I think the children's bluebird was just a nice story. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't seeing it as a doctrinal theology, Lindsay. <laughs> Fascinatingly, I, I, I saw um, physicist Brian Cox the other, the other day on TV and he was talking um, about, uh, he was being challenged about the Big Bang Theory and, and, and some of the ideas of astrophysics as being a faith narrative or something that that they had to believe and and he he made a strong case and argument to say that it wasn't something that he had to believe but something that he could know by seeing that that these powerful telescopes when they look up into the sky and see these points of light they're actually looking backwards in time the further away they see because light traveling towards us has taken longer so the more powerful telescopes they produce, the further back in time they can see as they're actually watching the expanse or um, happen. Um, they're able to actually then go, well, we can, if we develop a powerful enough telescope, we can actually see the origin point of the universe. 
Um, and I, I thought that was fascinating um, in terms of trying to get our heads around this kind of stuff. That there's a there's a sense in which, um, yeah, that 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 we can see backwards in time when we look up at the stars. Yeah, that that's right. I mean, the the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, is specifically designed to enable that. And and one of the interesting things about it is that it's a, an infrared telescope. And the reason, one of the reasons that that's important, um, is that that really really early light uh, from uh, galaxies at the very beginning uh, of the the universe. Uh, because they're so far away and traveling so fast in, in a direction away from us, they've been redshifted. So the, the visible light that would have been there at the time, uh, we can no longer see as humans because it's been redshifted till it's outside the visible light spectrum and it's in the infrared spectrum. So uh, that's one of the reasons for JWST um, having that infrared uh, focus. The other, of course, being that uh, infrared light tends to cut through uh, dust and stuff like that, which means that uh, they can see through dusty, cloudy nebulas to the, the stars behind better. Mm -hmm. My understanding always was with um, scientists that look at these things and look at things like time and dimensional stuff is that time travel is possible but only forward. They don't seem to believe you can go backwards to the past. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think that's certainly one one school of thought and it, it relates to that uh, arrow of time idea. But yeah. we know better because you know we've seen, <laughs> we've seen Kirk use a, a a bird of prey, a Klingon bird yep. of prey, to slingshot around the slingshot sun. around the sun. Um, and 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 I, I really love the the kinds of conversations that come out of this kind of time travel. I remember in that particular Star Trek Four movie, um, the there's Scotty and um, and Chekhov having a conversation as they're about to reveal the secrets of transparent aluminum. To an engineer in 1984, I think it was, or 1986, 86, um, and um, and and Chekhov saying, "Won't you change time if you actually do this?" And Scotty says, "How do you know this isn't the guy who invented it?" Um, and so <laughs> there's this whole idea of that 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 we may be destined to change time, that we may be that that even if we could go back, we wouldn't actually change anything. In this case. We seem to be able to, to witness Kess making changes to time and yeah. and flippantly almost at the dinner party at the end of the episode, sharing information about people's future. Um yeah. so so No, yeah. I don't agree with that. I don't think she was sharing very much at all, and rightly so. Well, Can you imagine I, I, Tom and Kim and their reactions if she was sharing that stuff? Yeah, look, we don't know exactly what she said, and then they made the decision not to share. But there certainly was this 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 conversation, very informal conversation that was happening, um, and and there certainly there was no directive. Like so, in other time instances in Star Trek, we end up with what's called the temporal prime directive, where it's actually against the rules to actually share anything about the future, um, and um, and so in this case, you know, Neelix does know he becomes a security officer. That could influence things, <laughs> um, especially for Tuvok, who hates him. So, yeah, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know Tuvok hates him. Oh, okay. I was a hyperbole there. That's right. I think so. That's an oh. exaggeration. No, Forgive I think me my exagger- human emotion, emotional position on that one. So. <laughs> I think you're exaggerating about how much Kes is actually sharing. I don't know she's shared a lot. And a yeah, lot she- of that sharing has been bewilderment with where am I and, my God, you're a security officer kind of sharing. Yeah, yeah. And look, it's only yeah. the last sharing that matters because all of the rest of it changed things. Every time she moved, she seemed to change change things. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah. And it, I, I mean, one of the things that occurred to me as I was watching this and thinking about those two different approaches to time travel um, was that uh, uh, while it's not about time travel, um, I, I think it's interesting that in the scriptures, uh, you have sort of uh, two different approaches to prophecy, which in a sense is talking about what will happen in the future. Um, you know, and I think if if you look at the prophetic literature, um, it, it seems very much to be premised on the idea that uh, you can change what is going to happen, uh, you know, and so what uh, Jonah goes and warns the people of Nineveh, God is going to destroy you, and they repent, and then God doesn't destroy them. So the the whole point of the prophecy is to say this could happen, but you can change uh, what might happen. Whereas then you have uh, apocalyptic literature, where I think much more the the focus is on trying to show that that time is immutable and that no matter what you think, God is going to achieve, you know, the the plans that that, uh, the apocalypticist is is showing you behind the curtain and saying, this this is definite. God is going to do these things, so don't worry. Uh, It is all going to work out in the end. And I I find that quite an interesting thing that there's these two sorts of uh, approaches to whether you can change the future or not. I think there's a lot of complex history and evolution of theology and, and ideas that goes on between the two things, um, between prophets and revelation that need to be taken into account if you're going to look at it like that. But I think basically you've got, I'm going to warn you because the warning is coming from the person who holds the destiny through their power. So Yahweh says, if you don't recant, and repent and turn back to me. I'm going to send the Assyrians to flatten you. Mm. Um, so he controls it. But then you have the day of the Lord when everyone's judged. And by that time, it's too late. You're going to be judged on what you've done and who you are. You can't mm. recant at the last minute and say, oops, if only I'd known, I would have behaved differently. You know, by then it's too late. Is it ever too late? Well, it is when you're looking at Jesus on his cloud with his angelic trumpet saying, right, I'm reading out the names in the book. Yes, it is too late. Give me a pencil. I'll write my name in down the bottom here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, I guess guess, uh, coming back to the episode, you know, I then begin to think, will the year of hell really happen? Yes. Are they foreshadowing? (laughs) Yes, that's right. And those of us who who know season four know that, in fact, they are. And and it'd be interesting to know, I don't know if you've uh, read anything about this, whether that that was always the plan or whether, in fact, they, they, you know, later thought, oh, we had this mention of the year of hell. Why don't we do that? It seems like a bit of a setup to me. But, But are you saying that this comes true, Lindsay? Are you saying that Captain Janeway dies next season? 
Wow, that's quite a scoop. <laughs> Does she? Captain Chakotay no. takes over. That's what it says. We saw that. I mean, if history outlines itself the way that it flows. No, um, no, 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 no. What changes not... have been made? Did Kess's warning to Captain Janeway save her life? Well, you'd think One so, would hope you? so. One yep. would think so, yes. I mean, we witnessed the moment where the, the, the console explodes and Balana and Janeway fly backwards and suddenly they're both they're both dead. We get to see um, a grief-stricken Chakotay and Tom Paris kneeling next to the their their uh, their, their beloveds uh, as they die in front of them. That, that's um, it was, that was quite a striking scene. I needed the tissues for that one. Oh, absolutely, dear. absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting. Like by this episode, there's no doubt at all that they're playing around with the Tom Balana thing. You know, I mean, there've been yeah. sort of hint, hints of that up to now, but. But here, clearly, it's at least you know one possible future outcome is Tom and Bolana that that they're they're showing us here, and whether that will come to pass, well, some of us know. <laughs> well, you've already told me it does, so you know, so we don't have. worry about spoiling it for me. And oh. I figured, I figured something had happened if Tom was married to Kess, and I mean, he did have some fondness for Kess. Yep. earlier on. I'll tell you the things I found the most incredible. The doctor's head of hair. That's yes, that was good. <laughs> I thought that was just ridiculous. The Doctors. fact that Harry Kim would be Paris's son-in-law, just no. <laughs> well, that's what happens with the short-lived. I, I thought that, that. Uh, I thought Dr. Schmollis Chris Kendrick had a good head of hair just then. <laughs> Dr. Oh, wait, Van no, Gogh. Dr. Van Gogh. Dr. Van Gogh, Dr. that's Mozart. right. <laughs> I, I did check. He did have two ears, so um, you know that that that's probably a, a good thing. Um, I it wonder, is a good thing. Uh, so, going yes. through the artists, and I think that denoting age and change of temporal scene by people's hairdos yes. is very passe and to that. Well, that's how that's we do it. <laughs> they well, don't have fashion. They can't change fashion, so that that doesn't work for them. So. And, um, and interestingly, you know, his his hair is sort of um, uh, going backwards to the usual uh, route that hair takes, uh, you know, in, in keeping with the episode. So he's getting more hair the older he gets rather than less. Yeah. One fascinating piece of trivia is that we, we've talked about in the past that uh, Jennifer Lean was, was really thinking about leaving the show and she was becoming irritated with some of the things she had to do. She was, uh, I was doing some reading this week. She was turning up late um, for, for things. And so um, the longer hair meant that she didn't actually have to have her um, prosthetic applied mm. for her ears um, in right. all of the scenes because the hair covered the prosthetic. Um, and I did notice that baby, baby Kess um, didn't have our company ears at all. She started off life with very human ears, which uh, ah, was probably had more to do with the budget than any kind of uh, I think company so. evolution. And that and child abuse. I don't yeah. know what sort of thing you'd have to put a baby through. And I thought maybe Ocompan babies are just born that way and their pointy ears develop later. Who knows? Later on. Well, yeah. they do come out the back. So um, we never right. get to see exactly how that happens because we're always at the front. But there must be some kind of uh, husk or something they talk about that opens at the back. And and they're born feet first. Did you notice that? Uh, I can see the feet, says Tom Paris. 
I did wonder actually with that, uh, you know, back sort of birth, you know, why there seemed to be the same level of pain. I mean, I think, you know, in the case of, of, of human uh, females, uh, you know, it's a lot to do with the fact that our birth canals are actually much smaller than our evolved heads actually need. Um, you know, but if you're, you're popping out of a sack in the back, you would have thought a, a bit of local anaesthetic and it would be quite painless. Well, the first time she was on a shuttle giving birth to um, her daughter with Tom, yep. so maybe there was no local anaesthetic laying around. Yep. Though I note her mother was still in pain too. I thought the whole thing was ridiculous given the way that um, Ocompens look like they're constructed. How does this baby get into this sack? And how do you not see all of it in the sack? Why well, it, it gets there by, by holding holding hands, doesn't it? They have to do oh, this they, holding hands. They have to their hands yeah. together, that's right. <laughs> yep. And the last piece of incredulity that really stretched me was Neelix being so very happy about Kess and Paris being together. Yes, fair enough. But he, he's the bigger man. He's moved on. He has, so he's really sorted himself out. He, he's now in security, so he does. He's, he's uh, you know, forming a new relationship with Tuvok. Though he still bakes I, a cake. Well, one of the things that you mentioned there, Elizabeth, the uh, the idea that you know Harry Kim could be Tom Paris's son-in-law because of the uh, the short-lived, or, or not so much the short-lived, the the quick quickly maturing uh, ocampans yeah. uh, was making me think, I wonder how that actually works. You know, like there, there's a there's an idea in, um, you know, the study of personhood that actually our personhood is not something that's just inherent to us, but something that is constructed by the relationships with uh, others around us. And, and it was making me think how... How would that relationship actually work if someone is living at basically 10 times the speed? You know, would you still be able to develop the same sorts of relationships in the same sorts of uh, time scales and stuff? It, it, it was making me think. Yeah, I wondered about that. I thought of Highlander, actually, with um, mm. um, the first movie, not the awful second one. Um, there is no he's... second one. We don't talk about it. There's no second movie. There's only <laughs> okay, one. There enough. can be only one. There can yes. be only one. Yes. I'm with you on that, Will. Um, and, you know, when he's with his love, when she's dying at the end, and he still looks the same, and she, of course, has aged considerably. Mm. And I, I wondered about that, and I thought about that scene in Highlander and how you do that. I mean, they were on their own by that stage because they'd become hermits yep. um, pretty much. But um, it's a good... It's an interesting, I think, um, thing to speculate on how you would manage that. And we get that magnificently haunting song by Queen, "Who Wants to Live Forever," which oh, is part wonderful. of the soundtrack of that yes. um, that movie. I do. Uh, yes, you've said that um, before. I can't one, imagine it. One of the things <laughs> that did rise for me out of that was that Tolkien actually discusses this as he explores the relationships between humans and the the immortal elves. Um, and and so it puts us on the other side of this equation, where where we are the short-lived who are developing quickly, um, and the elves are actually taking much longer to to grow um, and to live. And um and and I also wondered uh, as I was exploring, you know, some of that kind of stuff, I was thinking, well, you know, Tuvok is is uh, what three hundred years old, yeah. um, and and will live to be much much older. 
Um, and um, and so the Vulcans also actually live a lot longer than the humans do, and and by all accounts develop um, much much slower um, than than they do because we we had that flashback of Tuvox where he was on board the ship with uh, with uh, Sulu Captain Sulu, and and he was actually um, saying that he was in his young and immature age groups at at a mere what was he a hundred and something years of age, so. Mm. Um, so this idea of aging at different rates for different kinds of species is a really fascinating one to explore. Yes, it is. Uh, and uh, I mean, going back to your comment about Tolkien, it's interesting that my recollection is that uh, in comparing the the ageless elves with humans who who live and die, um, that that the elves talk about how uh, mortality is a gift. Um, you know, and there's actually something to be valued uh, in the experience that humans have. And I, I, I wonder to what extent is that, um, does that derive from the idea that, that Tolkien as a, a committed Christian had that, that death for a human is not the end, that actually there is, there is an afterlife and that might be different from the, the elves that never die, uh, but there is a, a new life uh, for humans, and I wonder, would you still think it was um, uh, death was a, a, a merciful thing or an advantage if, in fact, that was the end? Mm. I don't know. And in Tolkien, it's not entirely clear cut because elves can be killed, um, yes. and they are by the dark side. And the second is, if an elf marries a human, they re- for- forfeit their immortality and they become mortal. So when Arwen marries, um, what's his face? Aragorn. Um, Aragorn. Um, she has to give that up. Yep. But yep. she's willing to do that. Now, I, I think in that case it's because um, uh, uh, she's already half elven and, and so she, she, has, she has the option to choose mortality or to choose immortality, you know. And, I and understood she, that she couldn't marry Aragorn unless she chose mortality. Yeah, I'd have to go back and, and watch, but I, I thought it, I thought it's a, a choice that they have because Elrond is actually half elven, and so she's she's actually uh, uh, got well, human might, as uh, well as elven. I might call upon our uh, our great fan uh, Philip Menzies, who's uh, written many papers and composed music for the Silmarillion project. Uh, if you're out there, Philip, and you're listening to this episode. Uh, Philip's been on the Deep Faith Nine podcast before. Um, fill us in. Um, I'd love to. We'd love to uh, hear your feedback in the comments section on this episode about um, about uh, some of our accuracies and inaccuracies regarding the uh, the immortality and mortality of elves. Hmm. Uh, one of the other things that I I really enjoyed as I watched this episode was the way in which the writers were sort of. Uh, spinning things out and, and 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 dropping little surprises, you know. So so I mean, even at the very start, you don't know who's in the bed, who the doctor's talking to, uh, who he's saying, you know, you were my greatest friend to, and and until it kind of shows Kiss after quite some time, and then all the way through, you know, sort of the little the little uh, little uh, Easter eggs that they're dropping that you know, oh, Chakotay is a captain now, and oh, you know, Tuvok is been promoted and Neelix's uh, security officer and mm. and then uh, you know uh, Tom and um, uh, Kessa's marriage and uh, 
so forth. And, and and I really liked that, you know, the little surprises and the little, oh, I wonder, I wonder what happened with such and such, and then they'd show you. Um, and it, it made me again think about the scriptures and, you know, when when we read, for instance, you know, the Gospels or stuff like that, how we often, I think, in our Western sort of way of looking at it, kind of imagine that this is like a videotape showing the progression of things and, and the development of things. But, of course, it's not. It's written by people who know how the story is going to end. And, and they, in the same way that the writers are manipulating us, uh, the writers of scripture are, are, are trying to manipulate people to show, you know, how things develop and the little surprises and, oh, Jesus does that. Oh, now I see how that fits in with, you know, what we've been taught and, and so forth. So I, I thought that was an interesting sort of idea to play around with. I hadn't noticed that, Lindsay, but I think you're right. I think that's exactly what the gospel writers in particular do. They drop these various things there that the then then you think, aha, when you're into the next few chapters. That's what that was about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think um in this episode, what's good about that is that it's it's clever writing and and direction because um, it puts us in the same perspective or position as Kess. So as she's attempting to actually solve this enigma and and gain insight into her own experiences in life that she doesn't have access to, we're doing the same. So so we are we are with her in that we know Kess and we know her journey up to now. Um, even to the point where I, I like I love that fascinating bit where they've just come on board the ship and Kess is there with her very short hair with Neelix and Neelix is doing the hard sell to say I can be a cook and I can be doing this and 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 Kess just launches into this is not going to make any sense to you at all but this is what's really going on and 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 so we know because we we were present for that episode that that that's not how it happened and that's not what occurred um, but it is what occurred this time um, and so it actually was um, was a really clever way of putting us in in the the time traveler's perspective. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's right. Uh, and while while we're talking about the little bits of information that they dole out, you know, I think we do need to you know just highlight that uh, one of the things that I don't think they say openly, but um, uh, Will's done a little digging for us is about our perpetual ensign Harry Kim. What did you discover, Will? That's yes, well, right. I did a I did a freeze frame. I paused the the image of Harry Kim in the med bay um, with a doctor. Oh, that sounded like Cluedo, didn't it? Harry Kim in the med bay. With the doctor. <laughs> um, he uh, he's and I zoomed in on his neck, and you can clearly see two pips, which means that um, when when uh, Andrew is is uh, what a, um, a year old. So how many how many years forward is that? That's that's getting to be what um, from Kess's three through to nine six years. Sometime in the next six years, um, Harry Kim gets promoted to be lieutenant in this timeline. Um, but they so didn't say so, and, and I wonder no. I wonder whether that was deliberate. Whether the writers by this stage have sort of picked up on the. Uh, Harry Kim is always an ensign bit, and, and so they don't say it out loud. Well, there was well, a couple of other ranks to... we found too. We yep. we saw um, Tom Paris has got his lieutenant commander 
um, or Commander Pips. We've got a Captain, Captain Chakotay, and we've got a Commander, Commander Tuvok. So, uh, and I didn't actually check to see what rank of security officer that Neelix maybe achieved, but um, but perhaps maybe he was an Edson. Who knows? Maybe he was. Who knows? Or, or maybe they used the little, uh, like the marquee thing, you know, for, for non-Starfleet field, field, field promotions. Yeah. Yes. Well, I was wondering how Starfleet would feel when, you know, that um, the ship Voyager flew back in at some point with a um, commander who, a uh, captain, sorry, not a commander, um, Captain Chakotay, who'd come from the Rebels, and whether yes. they'd be entirely happy about this. I, th- I think you were going to say there, Elizabeth, that if they came back after 70 years, you know, they'd arrive with a ship all full of admirals because they'd all had so many field promotions. Well, <laughs> well I don't know that, they but, will. <laughs> but, but the high likelihood would be, given, given the law of averages and statistics, that by the time they got back after 75 years, they'd all be part of Compa. I mean, the, the, the accompers are going to develop and breed and generate faster than anybody else on the ship. Uh, and so it's highly likely that what would arrive back after 75 years will be an entire crew all made up of, of a component ancestry. Oh, well, like given it. the I antics like of that young, um, oh, what's a, it's um, the young um, Vulcan mm. before. Which, yes. I yes. Can't, yes. Boric. Uh, I think there could be a whole lot of uh, Vulcans too. Yes. <laughs> so, that wow. Imagine this. The, the Vulcans who live to be 600 years of age and the Compans who don't get past 10. That, that, there you've got, uh, you've got some really interesting. You could, you could end up being your own grandfather, couldn't you? I mean, you could. I'm sure. I'm sure you could do that somehow. <laughs> that was kind of, that's where it was getting weird with um, Tom Paris and Harry King. <laughs> and the other thing that annoyed me was even six years would they'd look different. They looked exactly the same. You know, with the scenes we see when they're clearly older. Yep. By at least probably six to eight years. They don't look any different. They're exactly oh, gonna, the same. They should same. have been, got a, grown a mustache or something, or yeah, uh, that's, you know, got yeah. a scar or something. Or, yeah, that's that's right. Or you know, mm. grew their hair long, or cut it shorter, or dyed it white, or something. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that that struck me as I was watching this was during the uh, towards the end when. Um, uh, I can't remember what they're being threatened by, but but Kess walks onto the bridge and she tells Janeway what she needs to do to deal with the situation. Mm-hmm. And it's a trope that comes up uh, quite a bit in science fiction, the, the, the person who knows a bit more somehow, and I think we, we saw this similar thing with Harry Kim uh, the previous uh, week, but, but it was making me think about the individual who knows what's right and and that double-edged sword of of the person who has such a strong feeling that they know what is right in a situation mm. and and while you know in these sorts of sit- settings it often is the right thing um uh, i think that that kind of self assurance uh and and inability to doubt oneself is actually also uh, you know, behind some of the most terrible things that happen, and, and people who who think that they're they're right and are absolutely wrong. 
I suppose because Kess was experiencing it over multiple times and mm. could piece some things together, made her convinced that this attack was going to happen, it would be in this form. Um, so I, I was all right with her being sure about that. But it did remind me a bit about uh, of Cassandra, who is mm. in one of the Greek plays, who comes no back believes. from... Yeah, Troy, and no one believes she's given the gift of a policy of, of prophecy, but the curse that no one will ever believe her, even though she's speaking the truth. Yeah, that's a nasty tragedy, that one. It is a um, nasty tragedy. I um I I was also fascinated by the idea that um you know that that, that if we could read next week's script, if we could know what was going to happen next week, um, whether that would change things or 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 I mean, I, I, there's a lot of discussion about this in, in Strange New Worlds at the moment with Captain Christopher Pike, who actually knows how he will end up at the end. And we know that because it's already in future Star Trek. And so he, he, he's, he, he, he begins trying to avoid his destiny. Maybe if he never flies in a starship again, it won't happen. Um, and then he, he's got to start living his life. And there's some really interesting conversations along these lines in Strange New Worlds. So that's worth checking out too if, uh, if mm. any of you are interested in um, exploring this matter forward. I, I think that's one of the meta-narratives of Strange New Worlds that just keeps arising. It, it is, but I think um, one of the things that I'm enjoying is that as Strange New Worlds is progressing, there's just a few little seeds of things that, that are actually suggesting that maybe that fate isn't preordained and, and maybe it's possible that somehow uh, he will actually avoid that. And again, it's that same tension between, uh, you know, is it possible to change the, a known future or not? Um, but uh, yeah, I'll be interesting to see how they play that, whether they play it with a, a straight bat, uh, you know, so that what happens uh, remains what happens in canon or, or whether they suggest uh, as Star Trek has done in, in some of its properties, uh, that it's possible to change the timeline and we end up with a new timeline where um, Pike has a different outcome. Well, that wouldn't be good for Kirk. Uh, <laughs> I mean, William Shatner will lose his job and, and, and you know, that, that could create a complete collapse in the time-space continuum. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I was fascinated about with this episode was the idea that we might medically attempt to avoid natural death. Um, you know, like there is a sense in which what the doctor was attempting to do was to say, well, I'm not satisfied with the idea that a compens can only live nine to 10 years uh, and that this, uh, this um, um, end, end will come. And so he's attempting to use science to avoid natural death. Um, and I, I wonder, like, that's a very interesting conversation for us to have as humans, especially considering we're now living upwards of 20 years longer um, than we've ever lived before and that there are significant social consequences for that longer living. Yes, that's right. And I think, I mean, there's not just um, social consequences, there's monetary consequences mm. or economic consequences and um, other things as well. To go back to what you were saying before about would you want to know what was going to happen? Could you read the next week? I don't know that I would. Mm. And I know that doctors will tell you that a whole lot of people walk around with a whole lot of terrible things wrong with them inside and they don't know about them. 
and yet managed to get on with living anyway. Mm. Um, I think I'd rather be in that state of ignorance. But what if you did by accident? I don't know what I'd do if I did was, by accident. If it was suddenly revealed to you, if you, 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 you know, opened an envelope and read a, a report that said, um, this is going to happen on this date, you know, we, we, we get good enough to predict an embolism and by the minute, you know, like um, how, how does that, you know, if, if we discovered that by accident, would it affect the way that we live our lives between now and then? Probably, because most people would do something about it. If you knew on this day at this hour you were going to have an embolism, you'd probably make sure you were parked in front of the nearest emergency hospital. <laughs> That's right. And, and, I mean, I think the interesting thing is that most of these things are actually probabilistic rather than, than deterministic. And, yeah. and so we do currently have people who discover things about their health situation that give them a high probability, for example, of having breast cancer, who, who decide to do something about that and, and might, you know, do something like have a, 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 um, a voluntary double mastectomy. Um, because that it will lower the chances that uh, that particular outcome will be the case for them. So, you know, it, it's interesting that, that we do try to manipulate uh, the, the future as much as we can do so. And I guess that then feeds back into that question you are raising, Will, about if I know that there is a medical procedure that can give me longevity, that can mean that I do live to 150 or uh, whatever. Is there anything more wrong with that than uh, me choosing to change my diet or to have some surgical intervention because I discover that it's likely that I might have this particular uh, health issue? I think I'd ask a lot of questions first, like, like what nick am I going to be in if I live that extra 50 years? Mm. You know, am I going to be dependent? Am I going to be independent? Will yep. I be able to feed myself? Can I get dressed? Will I spend 25 of those years lying in a nursing home? I'd want to know a lot of answers to those yeah, questions yeah. before I'd be going ahead with something like that. There's a big well, difference between quantity of life and quality of life. Quality of life, of life exactly. Yeah, absolutely. But I, for one, welcome our head-in-a-jar overlords of the future and yes. wish to join them. <laughs> Transhumanist. Well, there's people doing that. This idea that you can somehow perpetuate your life for ex and extend it for decades beyond its natural function is seen in very wealthy people, you know, doing cryogenics and they've got their heads in their whole body if they're rich enough preserve waiting for some cure for disease or when they can be resurrected and live sometime in the future. Mm. I'm sorry, I just think that's a waste of money. End <laughs> world poverty, you know, don't preserve yourself in a bucket of ice. In fact, there's an entire Next Generation Star Trek episode completely based around that where they find a, a spaceship floating in space um, and all of the people on board are cryogenically frozen. They've paid a lot of money back in the late 20th century to be frozen um, somehow they all got forgotten about and they just floated off into the distance um, and the, all of the ailments that would have killed them or did kill them were now easily fixes, fixable. So Dr. Crusher just waves her magic tricorder and suddenly they're all better. Um, and and um, it, it's, it's a really fascinating um, look at this idea of, of, of how we go about, I mean, should we tinker? with the end end of life is is there a line is there a place where we should actually go well okay that's that's fine but no further 
I reckon there is. Lindsay probably won't agree with me. <laughs> but I reckon there is. I mean, look what's happening now with our elderly with COVID. People don't realise the severity of the plague at the moment and how many people it's actually killing a week. Mm. It's mm. hundreds. If we had that many dying by shark bite or by suicide or by, you know, bus crash or airplane death, there'd be an outcry and we'd yeah. do something about it. But, you know, we are sacrificing vulnerable people because most of them are over 50. Um, they're not all, you know, with terminal cancer in their 80s like everyone wants to wish they are. They're not. And, you know, what is the point of living longer if we're just going to throw you on the scrap heap of neoliberal economic, you know? Perhaps COVID Love. is the solution to the baby boom economic stress um, curve, you know, like we... we, 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 we 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 let the, the the virus take its course and it fixes our retirement issues. I think that's a very nasty point of view. <laughs> I agree. I'm just well, it, it, out it is a it is a nasty point of view, but I mean, it it in a way it's of a piece with the sort of uh, uh, extreme uh, you know sort of ecological point of view that you know humanity is a curse on the on the on the planet and the planet is going to get rid of us. Well. Why could COVID not be that method that the planet is getting rid of us? I think it... I have, yeah, I've suggested that many times, Lindsay. Mm. It is, it's throwing us up the, the plague that we are. But putting that aside, whether I believe Mother Earth is ravaging the Earth with a plague to get rid of the plague, um, the idea that human beings would so easily sacrifice people at that stage of their life, and a lot of people in their 80s, because of medical care, live happy, vital, mm. independent lives yep. and to say those lives are worth nothing, that because of economics we can just chuck them on the scrap heap with a very mm. nasty death, I just don't no. think that's right at all. No. No, definitely not. So coming back to the, um, you know, Campans uh, and their short lifespan, um, I guess the other question that, that this episode raised for me was around the decision that someone like Tom Paris or presumably like Harry Kim has made uh, to to marry, to join themselves uh, with someone that they know, you know, putting aside the doctor's miracle cures, yeah. um, is going to die in Kess's case, you know, in, in uh, six, seven years, um, you know, that that's a that's a big choice to make, isn't it? And I guess in in human um, situations, sometimes you know people do have uh, some kind of illness, so they know that they're going to die in a certain amount of time, or uh, you know someone uh, with with a um, a partner who's about to go into war, and they decide to get married. Um, but it, it's quite a it's quite a wrenching and and big choice, I think, to to make yeah. that kind of commitment. And it's not just about the death either. It's in this particular case, it's about the aging. So, yeah. so Tom's capacity to go and do things and be involved in things, and 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 his energy levels and his his uh, appearance um, are all going to remain reasonably static, whilst Kess's is going to deteriorate at a rapid pace. Um, and so they're 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 going to become unequally matched um within a very short period of time um and so that i guess that requires and we see it tom does it well in this episode 
um, we see that that's going to require a much higher level of love and commitment and discipline. I mean, I mean, I guess he could uh, he could quite easily just go, oh, look, she's she's gotten old now. I can I can move on and find someone else. Uh, and the old Tom probably would have done that. He probably would have. And kudos to Tom that he's reformed enough that he doesn't. Hmm. Yeah. And this time, anyway. Line. He, he won't have to wait long anyway, though, will he? I mean, eventually, eventually, she is going to die, and he can just then he can move on and take some, take another wife. Well, I uh, another a camping. Yeah, that's right. I, thinking cynically about that, hey, I mean, he he could sit there and calculate. Well, you know, it'll be over soon, and then I'll just get a new model. Um, I don't know that he's doing that though. He seems to me like the Highlander movie, you know, with the immortal there to be quite genuine about mm. his care for Kess and his affection for her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this episode also does an interesting twist for us because we are beginning to speculate about Tom and Balana. So throwing in this relationship with Kess um, kind of um, throws us off the trail a little bit there, although at the end we kind of back back on that line again. But it, it actually just um, shows, shows us a range of possibilities for all of our characters uh, and the way they might develop and, and grow as well. I thought the holodeck scene made that clear with Kess where mm. she says, oh, you must be Balana, and Balana's a bit puzzled by that because Tom sort of has his arm around her and he kisses her and yep. it seems to me that was making a statement they were a unit. And well done for Kess to uh, to pull back at that moment and not say or do anything that may have been reactionary or responsive in that situation because clearly she, at that stage of her travel back down the timeline, um, was beginning to recognise that there there was chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. Oh, one of the other um, things that, that uh, this raised for me was right at the start, before we really understand what is happening with Kess, um, you know, the, the, the way that she um, uh, comes across to other people is that she's actually got dementia, that she's losing her memory, not because she's going back in, in time and, and, and actually making new memories, but because she's she's uh, got some form of dementia and is losing her memories. And um, uh, that that's such a, a, um, a, an interesting sort of area to think about because... I mean, as Will said, we're living longer and longer. And so as human beings, we are much more commonly experiencing with loved ones that they do uh, get to the stage where um, they have um, uh, issues with um, cognitive function and memory and, and so forth. And um, and how you respond to that and, and, and the sense of the person losing something that makes them uniquely them is, um, I, I think, a real source of, of grief and loss in a lot of um, uh, relationships for people who see that happening to a, a parent or to a, a partner. Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely correct. And yep. if I get to that point and get told I have Alzheimer's or dementia, I shall be exercising the voluntary assisted dying legislation that is passed through New South Wales. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? You know, both both in terms of do I want to go through that degenerative, um, you know, progressive illness and, and also do I want my loved ones to go through it? But in a sense, um, 
you know, in in me making that decision, I'm I'm then uh, saying something about what my loved ones are going to experience uh, one way or the other. So it, it's it's never just me, is it? It's always no. it's always other people are affected, and and even you know, in making decisions about uh, voluntary assisted dying. Uh, you know, I think it's something that you you have to have such good communication and an ability to talk to your loved ones about why you feel the way you do and and what it is that you would like to to do as a choice about your life and how that's going to affect them. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Lindsay. I don't think it's ever a decision that you make on your own if you have friends and family. So one um, thing I wanted to didn't want this episode to get away without mentioning was was the the amazing um, uh, love affair um, and romantic relationship that occurs in Doctor Who um, with the eleventh Doctor between uh, the Doctor and River Song, uh, and um, one of the things that's fascinating about that is that um, the first time the Doctor meets River Song is the last time the River Song ever meets the Doctor. Um, and throughout their journey together, they keep crisscrossing each other in time and they keep a diary to work out what they know and what they don't know because the journey of the Doctor that we follow going forward through the Doctor's timeline is actually the reverse of the journey that River Song has with the Doctor um, in in her timeline. And if we were to follow her timeline and make her the centre of of the story, we would actually be traveling in an opposite direction in time from the doctor. So I, I felt that there was something of that in the way this, this episode was structured in that we were, we were actually um, from old Kess's perspective, the linearness of time was traveling in the opposite direction and, but she was still growing in experience and understanding in the same way as she would, if she was traveling the other way. Yeah, she was. Hmm. Mm. Even the child arguing with her father had yep. that full kind of knowledge, which brings up what I think you said earlier, I think, Lindsay, about the baby. Did the baby have that full knowledge but lack the means to communicate to Communicate. That's yeah. right. Yep. Yep. Now, the piece of trivia I wanted to mention as well, uh, at Kessa's birthday party, she talks about having the lung capacity to blow out the candles and... Um, uh, Neelix mentions her single lung. She only has one lung. Uh, yeah, she donated that him one. Because she donated him a lung during the episode The Phage back in the first series. Even um, I remembered that. That's right. So <laughs> so they made a point of that. It was a nice little piece of trivia there where he was going lung. Uh, yeah, so. That's right. Um, yes. Uh, so And I think earlier in this se- season, Neelix also talks about his singular lung capacity as well. So... So uh, they do share a lung. I did wonder whether or not Ocompan organs also have a shelf life of only 10 years and uh, what that might mean for Neelix going forward mm, in time. Yeah, with um, the lungs. Would he, would he need a lung replacement because his uh, Ocompan organ would not actually live as long? Uh, do do organs only uh, do, do organs have the same lifespan as their donators? If so, he would have been far better off to get a Vulcan lung than an Ocompa yeah. lung because that would last much longer than he needed it to. I well, presumably the Vidians, right. you know, were able to do some, you know, little magical that's thing right. to to make it extend or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they seem pretty good in the old transplant department. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that's their life, isn't it? That's uh, their, it is their, their life. Their entire uh, culture is now um, based on transplanting. I guess they must have converted an Ocompa lung into a uh, Talaxian lung, so that that uh, they're, they're they're very um, construction changed, so they'd be compatible. Well, I think so, that that's what that episode suggested. Yeah. So my quote of the week, we've we've already uh, kind of um, referred to it, but I, I did think it was quite funny, uh, you know, when um, uh, Kim says to Paris, so how does it feel to be a grandfather? And he replies, a lot better than it does to have you for a son-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I oh, thought that, was, that was funny. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh I, I was certainly taken uh, by Ch um, Chakotay's um, line when uh, he, he has to reorganise the crew after Janeway's death and he says, uh, when this is over, we're all going to have a lot of grieving to do. Um, he he actually has to kind of not only deal with his own stuff at that point but actually find a way to get the crew to, to focus back on what they need to do in order to survive. And I, I thought that was a really interesting point of leadership from, from Chakotay there. Mm -hmm. mm. I think Chakotay is a good leader. You know, I think it's a shame that we don't actually get to see that more uh, from him through the run of Voyager. But, for, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to give up the female captain. I'll be devastated if she's really killed off. Well, you'll have to wait and see what happens in the year of hell. Um, I will, won't I? Absolutely. It's a, a two-parter and everything. That's correct. Yeah, well, I would have thought that with the year of hell like giving Kess's information, they should be armed and dangerous and waiting for it. You, They'll be able to so. re recalibrate their shields to make um, make uh, allowances for the temporal variance. Yes, um, exactly. So um, there is a number that keeps appearing in Star Trek, and that's the number 47, uh, and the temporal variance was 147. Um, the four seven appears uh, throughout Star Trek, not just um, Star Trek uh, Voyager, but but even back to the original series that they use this number all over the place for no particular reason, just because you know there's a recurring number. So, well, possibly, although um, uh, there is one theory which is that uh, one of the writers, Joe uh, Minoski, attended uh, Pomona College in California and that there is a club at Pomona College called the 47 Society. Uh, mm. So it, it could well be that this writer is uh, putting in little uh, Easter eggs based on uh, uh, his, his own uh, uh, being a member of that 47 Society. Although I was under the impression that the 47 predates that writing, which would in, in fact mean that perhaps being a member of the 47 um, club meant that he was more likely to be chosen as a writer for Voyager. Um, so uh, it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Uh, a bit of temporal logic there. What comes first? Who knows? Possibly. Possibly. Who knows? Well, uh, I think we've probably um, uh, travelled backwards and forwards through this episode as much as we possibly can today. Um, looking forward to next week's episode, um, which uh, is, is quite a, a, an exciting one. Is it? Um, 
Uh, they're all exciting. You know, we, we love No, them they're all. not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's next, a good one because it's a doctor one. And, it and is. Oh, I, like, I do like the doctors. Yes, and uh, the doctor gets uh, a, a, a significant dose of reality next week. Um, oh, is so this the holographic family one? He, he does <laughs> yep. get his, his very own holographic family complete with rebellious teenager and uh, – and oh, a very dutiful wife, I have to say. Uh, it's uh, but um, yes, some some real lovely shenanigans take place when Balana discovers the programming and actually decides that she's going <laughs> to spice it up just a little bit so that there's a bit more reality there than what the doctor programmed for himself. Why yeah. on earth does he want to do this? Well, no, we'll talk about that next week. But he does have, I think, an, a very valid reason for attempting to do it. Um, and and I think that he discovers some things. Um, for himself, so we'll get the opportunity to talk a little bit about the value of suffering next week, um, oh, which I think will be wife. really useful. Yeah. That smile. <laughs> That's right. Look That's at that. Shocking. That's the perfect. The perfect family. The perfect oh, family. It's a no. Stepford, Stepford wife. It is a Stepford wife book. It really is. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll look forward to the, that next week. We'll be back with real life. Until then, um, I'm going to jump in and make sure that it's me this time, uh, unlike a couple of weeks ago when I got usurped. Uh, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain. <laughs>